Recording this podcast near the end of 2023, and one thing I hear from brokerage professionals during the year, and actually any year, but more particularly this year, is how to keep their deals on track. Inevitably, in this year, there's been things that have gotten deals off the rail, especially with sales transactions, financing, valuation issues, and things like that. But that's you know that happens in the in the sales market. But really, we're going to focus today on the leasing market because it's equally important when you're leasing space, either as a tenant or a landlord, uh, to keep those deals on track because you know there are options out there, so to speak. And you don't want to lose, depending on what side you're on, uh, you don't want to lose momentum that'll help your business. I'm Dan Spiegel, Senior Vice President and Managing Director of Cobalt Banker Commercial. And on today's CRE with CBC Worldwide Podcast, we're going to speak with Annie Mallow, a partner at Holland & Knight in the Boston office. Annie's a real estate attorney who focuses her practice on a variety of commercial real estate matters, buyers, sellers, owners of properties in negotiating purchase and sale agreements, as well as leasing, due diligence, and other aspects of commercial real estate. Annie has an extensive retail leasing and development practice. She represents a number of national retailers and multi-state expansions regarding buyers and sellers and leases, as well as real estate developers in the purchasing or leasing of resale space. Annie, welcome to the CRE with CBC Worldwide Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you today. And as I said, we're not going to focus as much on the sales side. We're going to really focus on the leasing because that's been a lot of your practice. Uh, but as I said, uh, it's what I hear from from brokerage professionals. You know, deals are in this particular economic client. Deals have been falling apart. And we understand sort of the reasons on the sales side. But it's equally, as I said, equally important on the leasing side to keep those deals on track. Uh, as we as we say in the business, and I'm sure attorneys say as well, time kills all deals, right? So you got to keep Absolutely. the deals moving. So, Annie, why don't you start? Just tell us a little bit about your um, your background, how you got into this particular space of of real estate and this particular focus, and then we will go from there. Absolutely. So I have been working with my dad doing real estate development since I was 16 years old. So real estate has kind of been in my blood since as far back as I can remember. It was an easy go-to when I went to law school and graduated law school, even during a downturn in a recession, real estate was kind of where I was headed. So I've always done real estate in my my law practice. Um, I'm right at about 12 years now. Um, and I have practiced, luckily I've had the benefits of working both in the Southeast. So I'm from Alabama, that's where my parents' development company is. And then I practiced real estate law in Virginia for six years before following my husband to Boston, which is where we how we ended up here. Um, but I love working in Boston. It's got such a broad reach, and I have a team here that works nationwide. So I really get to experience all the different aspects of real estate all over the country now, which is really exciting. Excellent. Excellent. It's great to have you. You know, I, I was kind of laughing and smiling to myself if people could see me on camera because so many people will say, if there's anybody that kills a deal, it's an attorney. I know, <laughs> um, and, and you're and you and you smile as well, right? But yeah, and maybe the fact you come from a family of development and real estate, you know how important it is for the attorney not to be the deal killer. Maybe there's times when that role is important, but more importantly, to keep the deal on track. And I think that's going to be the the real focus today is how your attorney or legal partner can keep deals on track. Absolutely. So why don't you, I know you when we had a pre-call, you told me about some both technology and, and things that you've developed with your team to help your multi-market clients. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and, and what it is exactly? 
So here at Holland and Knight, I have an incredible team of people that help me serve what we call volume tenants and the or volume real estate, which means they do anywhere from 20 deals in a given year to they can do several hundred in a given year. Um, and as part of that, the biggest aspect you run into with doing volume is that a deal falls off your radar or one of your business people focuses on something that's a high priority, which is completely understandable, but then something else may slip and the follow-ups don't happen and that sort of thing. So we have actually created proprietary software here at Holland and Knight using some incredible um, IT people that we have in-house to actually track our volume tenants work. And that allows us to, my team here updates every week, they update the status, they make sure that they've touched the deal, they make sure that things are moving forward. And then it's also accessible on a dashboard to our clients. So it avoids the constant, hey, where are we on this deal? Hey, have you heard from landlord or tenant on XYZ? They can always go into the portal and see the last time that a Holland and Knight attorney actually touched that deal, whose court it's in, and where it's going. And then post-signing of a deal, we also use it for critical date tracking so that you can always know what's going on. There should never be a point in a deal with my team where it's not feeling like it's moving, unless it's intentionally been put on hold, of course. Um, but there should never be a point where it doesn't feel like your deal is a priority and moving forward at some point, and that you don't know what's going on. And we use that tracking software in order to keep everyone on the same page. And here, we've really had the chance to flesh it out and do some great things with our project management team in-house. So we're still releasing new aspects of that software, I think now every couple of weeks, because we're in it and we're working in it and we're growing and our clients are telling us what they need in order to be successful. Um, but we've been able, as part of that, we're able to track when a deal comes in, when a deal is signed, when a deal closes and rent commences or closes in a sale. And we can actually show you over time how we've managed to shorten deal cycles because we have the data now to track that sort of thing. So it really does show that the more someone's touching a deal, the more it's front of mind, the faster your deal's gonna go because it just has to. There's no way to touch it and not move it forward at some point. That's great. You know, it's interesting, as I said, reflecting on my comment earlier, you're you're the attorney that gets the deal done, right? That <laughs> keeps the deal moving. And it sounds like you've created a platform and a technology to help make it help facilitate the deal, but also keep full visibility. Absolutely. So I think it doesn't really matter if you're doing 20 leases or three leases. You know, it's it's we often say in commercial real estate, you know, we manage our business via Outlook and PDF, you know, back and forth. Yes. And where is that file? I can't find that email and that sort of thing. So it sounds like you've been able to come up with a platform to facilitate just information sharing with your clients, but most importantly, to keep the deal on track. That's exactly it. And that's what we pride ourselves on is getting the deal done. And so I hope I hope people don't think of me as that lawyer that kills the deal because I really do come in and luckily I have some great associates here as well, but I, I hope they would tell you the same thing that I we train our people with the idea that we're all moving in the same direction. So the one really exciting thing about real estate is that we're not adverse. There is no winner or loser. Everybody is looking to sell or buy or lease and have a tenant. The end goal is roughly the same. So it doesn't really help you to always fight over the things that don't matter. So we're always kind of pushing toward finding what gets everybody what they need and developing an important relationship, particularly in leasing, because then once you sign the lease, you're stuck together for 20 or 30 years. Right. That's interesting what you just said, because you know you can stick to your guns, one's guns or whatever the expression is, and, and hold a deal point that kills the deal. 
But then as a property owner, you still have a vacant space. So I'm not sure what you have accomplished, right? Because that there that costs you money, right? The although more that you hold that space, you know, not to mention that as time passes, perhaps the cost of TIs, tenant improvements go up, you know, lending terms change, whatever. Things happen. And from a, a tenant side, particularly retail, it's it's lost time in market. Mm-hmm. Right. You're not in the market yet because you were delayed, right? So Exactly. Uh, yeah. So you're facilitating that process. So tell me how do you, I think what question I have is sort of like, how do you get a client? And it doesn't really matter if it's a developer, owner client, or a tenant client. How do you, you know, almost as a therapist, how do you help <laughs> them identify what is it the, that's most important in a deal and then help them stick to that as, as deals come their way? Absolutely. So honestly, I think a lot of my clients will tell you that early on in our relationship, you have to deal with me a whole lot. <laughs> um, we talk a lot. We're constantly talking through why certain things matter, when they would matter more. I work really hard very early on to understand your business. And that that's the most important part. I need to understand what the tenant, if we're on a tenant side, if you're a retail bank, if you're a QSR, if you're a convenience store, all of those have different priorities. And so there are certain parts of leases that, yes, all of the lease is important. And as a lawyer, I cannot tell you any differently. It all matters. But there are certain pieces of that that are just going to matter more to each tenant and each business sector. And getting in and really understanding what that means, having those conversations, talking about where the pitfalls really come from, and especially on more established clients, asking what's happened in the past. That's a big one. What are your pressure points? What has happened to you in the past that we need to avoid in the future? Because if they've been doing this a while, there's something that's always been a sore spot. It comes up. We always run into whether it's this permitting issue or or you know, an environmental issue or something that always comes up that they know in the back of their head, you just have to ask the question. But after talking a lot, the first probably three to five deals with me, you talk to me constantly. We've got long lists. We're going through every issue. You're explaining to me why it matters to you, why it doesn't. I'm going through the legal side of why it matters, why it doesn't. And then by the time we're six months into our relationship, those lists have gone from four to six pages to half a page. Because I just know. I know what goes on in your business. And because I talk to my clients constantly, because my team talks to the same business people at our clients constantly, anytime that changes, we're the first to know as well. So the more info you can give your attorney, the more you can talk to them, the more that you can build that relationship, the more quickly things move along because the attorney doesn't have to ask you. If you are always paying your rent, for example, if you are always paying your rent via ACH, and it's an automated system, and after the first rent payment, no one has any control over that, then hanging on to a 5% late fee may not be the hill to die on. Because you know once that system has started, it's not going to stop. So is that really where you need to, to hang your hat and waste you know, an hour of lawyer time arguing over it? Um, if you have to pay via check, that may be a problem because checks get lost in the mail different things happen. So you may need to be a little more concerned over something like that if a party needs a check or they have to write a check or there's something else in their administrative system that may create an issue. So just knowing all the little ins and outs makes our deals go so much faster. I've got clients that I've been working with for five or six years now 
that we can really work through a first draft and a first set of comments in a couple of hours because I just know what needs to be held onto and what doesn't. It's interesting what you say because I think in many respects, it's the same thing a broker or brokerage professional should do, at least I'll say, and I think global <laughs> banker commercial people do, you know, with their clients, which is spend the time up front to understand what the real needs are. Right. The real, you know, is the real need to buy property or is it really to, you know, have a retirement strategy? I don't know. I'll make something yeah. up. Right. There, there's a there's a story behind the story. And I think asking probing questions up front of your client to understand what is really on their mind and what motivates them or what's motivating them to do a deal, so to speak, will help you speed up the process when it gets to the end of the deal or when it gets to the deal making phase. Right. Absolutely. I think that's what you're saying is invest the time up front. Uh, in your case, you're saying I'm really a partner to the business, to the to the business, you know, the business, my part, my my client. I'm a partner to it, really trying to understand what they want to accomplish. So as we go through the process, we will get it done and we'll stay focused. I think that's what I heard you say, which is which is interesting. Absolutely, and I we do tend to operate very, very much in a what's important to you, and what's worth hanging on to. And and we've discussed in the past at our at our pre call meeting a little bit about how. The difference between wanting to get the lease that has everything you need in it versus get every win you can and how that slows down a deal. And that's been a very important conversation for a lot of my clients where in certain areas you have more leverage, your landlord or your tenant may have more leverage. And is it worth it to you to fight for something that ultimately doesn't matter just because you have the leverage to gain it at that point? A lot of what we do, because we do volume real estate, is we're looking more for uniformity in our systems than we are for getting the best timelines and the best deal at every given time. That uniformity is worth a lot more in time spent for us. And that's how a lot of my clients operate, which means, yes, sometimes there are a lot of things where we know we can give right off the bat. We're not going to hide it and hold it back and try to horse trade with you. We're going to say, we can give all of these. Here are the five things that I've got to have, or this just doesn't work for us. Right. Interesting. So when you once you go through that process of working with your client, understanding what's most important, when do you start incorporating strategies as an attorney to get those things in the deal? Is it at the LOI phase? What, what where in the deal do you want to start putting those things out? I don't know if they're always in, they're not necessarily a negotiating point, but just being very clear about what your needs are so the deal stays on track but your client gets what you want. When when does that happen? So I, I would love to say that that happens at the LOI stage. Um, and for some of my clients who have brokers that we work with regularly in very specific regions, those brokers I talk to probably more than my client because they're the ones looking at the deals and they're the ones kind of the front facing with the, the landlord or the landlord side. So they having the broker understand kind of those same pressure points and getting those in the LOI early are really, really integral to being able to move a deal fast. Some of our more seasoned brokers who I talk to fairly regularly probably also are tired of talking to me constantly. But they know that you know these three or five items are always an issue at lease negotiation. If we can put them out there at the LOI stage, even it doesn't have to be super detailed, but even if it's, hey, we are this type of tenant, we have regulatory requirements that require very specific language around these three topics. So you need to know that when it comes to negotiating, we just don't have a lot of leverage here. And putting it out there up front saves two turns of a lease by attorneys. And that that's thousands of dollars. 
Right. Because if everybody knows that's there, if it's there in the LOI, there is no pushback on it or significant pushback on it in the lease draft because it's already out there. Um, and so working with your brokers and really encouraging your brokers to have that same conversation and understand those same pressure points and putting things like that in the LOI will really move a deal early on along. Right. So I, again, you're you're setting up front partnership with your client to understand what's important to them. And then to some extent, you're, you, what you just described is you're partnering with the brokerage professional. It could be their tenant representative, presumably, and saying like, let's get these in the LOI now, letter of intent, For by the way, for those who may not oh, know yes. the, the lingo here, uh, but get it in the letter of intent up front instead of you know sort of agreeing on the high level terms and then getting off track when you get a negotiation because you have a very specific condition that has to be met. Like you're, I think what you're saying is put those conditions, if there are things that you must have, then put them up front so the expectation is set that you need those and you don't end up creating some ill will or some stumbling blocks or some unnecessarily give and take down the road that that extends the deal perhaps beyond you know some other tenant gets the space or something like that. Exactly. I mean, you'll hopefully you'll hear, and I, I like to operate my practice, and I'm very vocal about operating my practice in a very team setting, which, you know, lawyers aren't necessarily known for that, but we really operate that way. We are all working toward the same goal. Even the opposite side is still working toward the same goal. So all working together to get us to the same point. I'm a big fan of picking up the phone, which I know with technology, a lot of things, people try to do them via email. I'm the first when we moved to Holland at night, I think one of the associates down the hallway, the first thing she said to me is my team is on the phone constantly. <laughs> right. Because we are. We're constantly talking to people. And there are just things in your tone and in who you are and how you handle things that you can do over the phone or on a video chat or a Zoom that you just cannot convey in an email. Or it just doesn't quite come across as the way you want it to in an email. So we're always talking and communicating. You know, Andy, that's a good business practice in general. I think it's very easy to forget. And it's, listen, it's convenient to text and email. We know we can kind of do it on the fly. Uh, there's some risks to that as well. But actually, you know, having the conversation not only helps facilitate the deal, but also can bring out things that you would not have discovered if you had only asked one question in email. You know, that conversation uh, is, you know, quote unquote, in person in a way, right? And you can bring out other things that that are necess- that are important to get to get a deal across the finish line. Super, super good, good strategy across the board. Um, so let me go back for a second. You were talking about, you know, getting to the, I don't know what you want. Maybe you have a term from the core business points for a client, right? The, whatever they are, five or 10 essential things they need. And I imagine a lot of clients will say like, well, Andy, everything's important, right? This is important. Yes. And that's important. And this is important. How do you help a client distill down to a finite number of bullet points or issues that are just really must-haves in a deal and try to tune out those things that are important but just not core to getting the deal done? A lot of it just comes from my client trusting me, um, the amount of time the client's been working. So at any given time, we tend to work with big national clients, but you're not work- the big national client is not the client. There's a business person or a, a real estate manager or some sort of role that's actually in charge of you know, the deal and getting the deal done. And the more experienced they are, the more deals you do together and they start to realize, you know, well, this particular situation really doesn't happen for us. So 
by way of example, I have one client, they negotiate in, they do a lot of development, they negotiate negotiate in diligence periods, permitting periods, and then delivery in a lease. But as part of what they do because of liability issues, they do not take possession of the site until they have permits in hand. So there's a lot of things up front that just don't factor in when you know that you still don't have possession of the site until after that page. You can kind of skip negotiating the liabilities during that time. You can skip other than making sure insurance is the case. But when the tenant doesn't actually have control or possession of the site during that first six months of the lease, there's a lot that you it's not a hill you have to die on. Now, if it's the other way around, if people will take possession but have termination rights for failure to get permits, then you have a lot more you have to negotiate in because you have somebody that has a right to a space that then they can terminate their lease, but that doesn't necessarily make them leave. Uh Uh So you do have the liability of they have possession. Now they terminate your lease. Well, what happens then if they don't leave, if they don't take all of their things, if their contractor doesn't get the notice? Are you going through an eviction process? What does that look? Well, they've terminated the lease, so you don't have default remedy. Like, And there's there's a lot to that. And so I often see landlords are like, no, I want to turn it over the second we sign the lease because I want to be done with it and I don't want to control the property. They can have the permitting period. It's fine. I just want to be done with it. And it's like, well, you may be creating a bigger problem for yourself. It may be worth it to you to retain possession until we get a hard deal, as we would call it, which essentially means you don't have any more termination rights for not being able to get your operating permits. Um, When those termination rights go away and then you turn over, now you've kind of done away with a lot of risks on the landlord side. And working through a lot of things, let's see, how do I how do I put this properly? I hear a lot of times, this is market and we do it all the time. But when you actually walk through the process of how your client operates, how they do things, how they take possession, how they do their build out and all those things, you may discover that, well, we can have this right in the lease, but we're never going to use it. So why fight for it? Uh-huh. And a lot of that in default remedies, you'll have, there are all of these default remedies. You can end up with a default section in a lease that's pages and pages and pages. But then you realize, well, if your relationship has soured so badly, are you going to do much other than terminate and try to get your money back? Like what, what real default remedies do you want that you would ever consider asking for? And is it worth negotiating all these pages? Or do you really just want to be able to get your money back, fix your building via self-help, and get rid of the tenant if you really don't have a great relationship? And then maybe that's where you focus. And having those open and honest conversations about, are you really going to do X in this scenario? Do you have the back end to manage doing X because of the administrative tasks? Or can we just let it go and move on? Right, right. And very upfront, open, honest conversations are really going to be the answers. Yeah, I think I, again, I think you're playing part psychologist in this and uh, <laughs> part attorney. I think also a financial finance CPA partner for especially publicly traded companies, you know, things like possession of space means certain things to accountants, it does. right? So right. it's very, you have to have a, when you talk about a team, it's the client, it's the, it's the business person, it's the attorney, it's finance. There's probably several others as well. 
but a, not to mention the people who will occupy the space, your 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 workers and so forth. Um, they all have to come together. Um, so interesting, and that you, to some degree, you're playing project manager and, quarter, and quarterback of all those things, with the end goal being get the deal done. Exactly. Get them in, get them operating. That's the goal in retail. If you're not operating, you're not making money. Right. So. And, and in retail, you have things like times of year that are super important, right? Like they got to be yep. in by September in order to take advantage of the holiday season and so forth, right? It doesn't yep. help to open December 1st, right? And, well, nationally, you have the issue of building. So yeah. taking possession in December in Montana, it doesn't matter. You're not putting in that foundation in January. Right, right. Good point. Good point. So you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that you work with um, volume clients. So these are clients that do a, a a volume of transactions, which I imagine, you know, in retail, particularly of the new concept that it's expanding or something, volume is important, right? Because you got to get to the marketplace. What have you? What lessons have you learned? Maybe that you didn't have incorporated in your practice prior to working with volume clients. That now, you know, you have a different perspective on how to execute your business now that you've had this experience working with clients that do uh, you know, num- numerous locations? I mean, truthfully, with volume, the selling point is always efficiency and uniformity. I We talk about those terms in our team constantly. Efficiency, being able to get it done, because if you're doing volume, the point in doing volume is to do volume, is to get as many done as possible. And then uniformity, being able to rely on each of those deals being substantially similar to one another in administrative work is really important. And that's probably what I've learned the most about volume work is how much of a value uniformity in your document is. So if you have 100 documents that have cure periods of all sorts of all across the board, they can be five days, they can be no days, they can be 30 days or 60 days, you have to, every time there is an issue and you get a notice, you have to pull that exact lease and read it, which means you're paying an attorney to read it. Your your in-house counsel is losing time reading it to check. If you know that uniformly across your system, you always get, say, 30 days to cure a potential default, then you get your notice and you can roughly estimate 30 days. And one way that we manage that, so we shoot for uniformity. That's our goal it definitely doesn't happen every time. But that's the the pie in the sky dream is to be able to get the same deal every time. And then as part of that, what we do for our volume clients is we create what we call a deviation memo or an issues memo, or there's a whole bunch of different terms. But basically, a two to three page document at the end of the day that goes into their main file that lists anything that doesn't match the uniform terms that we've agreed to. So if for some reason you just have no leverage on your deal, and even though you always want 30 days to cure, you had to give in and give 10, that's going to be listed on that memo. So instead of pulling your lease and having an attorney read all you know the 90-page legalese to figure out what's going on, you can say, well, our standard is 30 days. I can pull this one or this three-page document, and it's going to say, hey, my attorney said we had to give 10 here, so we need to be on the ball. Um, and now our clients can really rely on that deviation memo and the standards that we've set together to operate their business without constantly having to go back to the the major documents. I think if we have any lease administration professionals listening to this conversation, they're probably applauding, right? What you just said, <laughs> right? Because what you said, you know, what becomes a real in the business, what be, can become very problematic is taking leases of different formats and different terms and then putting into a lease administration system 
And the reason for those the, those systems exist is because <laughs> leases are not con, they don't conform to any standard, right? Yeah. So the lease the lease administrators have to you know pull out and extract certain clauses and things like that to stay on top. So the more that it's uniform, you're not just getting the deal done, but you're you're certainly making a more efficient process to administer the lease, pay the lease, all kinds of things down the road. Yeah, and I will say that for some of our clients, that deviation memo also unifies terms. Um, that's something that we've done in the in the more recent past. But for example, if you're a tenant where 50% of the time you get your lease form, 50% of the time you end up with the landlords because of leverage reasons or whoever it may be, you may have an inspection period versus a due diligence period versus a review period. In those deviation memos, we we use uniform terms. So if the clients tend to operate under a due diligence period and a permitting period, even though it's called a review period, inspection period, and approvals period in the landlord's form, we put the due diligence, we we uniform the terms in that deviation memo to help out lease admin for that same reason. Right. That that makes sense. I imagine it's a little bit challenging as you go state to state because different states are going to have different regulations yep. around some of the business terms and, and things. But uh, the deviation memo, it sounds like, pulls that all together. Yep. That's also where you'll c- capture state-specific things and things that the lease admin, because there's usually in most of your volume clients, there's a lease admin, hopefully more than person, but occasionally there's just a person. Uh, but trying to make those terms and those concepts uniform, calling out state-specific things that that our local councils have really done or are, are luckily here at Holland and Knight, we have 2,000 attorneys. So we have a lot of licenses in a lot of states and in-house expertise that we can just go to. But calling out those things that in particular states we need to call out for them in that deviation memo in layman's terms so that no one's trying to figure out what that lawyer actually intended to say. We try to really make those things easy and readable and usable on a daily basis. Yeah. Interesting. Before we, you know, go into a little bit more into just like the business of, of retail and some things that we, we and I want to talk about still, you know, what I heard here is is to keep the deal on track and get the deal done fast, you start with a business conversation, identify those top points that are important to your client. Then obviously you go into negotiation and then this deviation memo and process helps you identify where there is a deviation to those top points and keep that top of mind to get the deal done. I think that's what I heard. So that's that's great. Yeah. That's really it's really great. So as I that's said, we're gonna, let's just <laughs> that's your life. That's great. Let's just segue because you know a lot of both from your family background and, and your business life. You know a lot about retail in particular real estate. So why don't you if we could just talk a little bit about the current retail market? I mean Frankly, little would we have thought, you know, what is it, three years ago when the pandemic thought, you know, the end of retail was near, right? And now retail vacancy is actually quite low across the country. Yeah. Um, There are some unique situations with malls being redeveloped. That's sort of a different class. We've talked about that on some of our prior podcasts. But the retail, you know, leasing space is tight, actually, in a lot of markets. Um, And you're finding in a lot of the newer retail developments sort of a mixed-use scenario. So that could be a existing retail center that used to be retail stores, but today has a medical office use or, I don't know, a distribution use or something like that, right? Because the the landlord wants to keep it full. Or you could have a multi-story facility where you have ground level retail and then you maybe have some shared office space, you know, that's that's master leased. And then you have apartments and maybe you have condos, you know, who knows, right? So tell me a little bit about in these mixed 
uses, right? It could be vertical or horizontal. <laughs> how is that? How have you seen that become a complicating factor for some of your some of your clients? So honestly, ironically, I have had three deals come in dealing with this exact same situation in the last week. So mixed use is the new thing, especially in regions just outside. It's becoming the go-to in regions outside of cities. It's always kind of been a common concept in you know downtowns, major metropolis areas. But now you're moving into the suburbs and the, the typical mall is not as common anymore. You're also under house nationwide. So a lot of your localities are saying, well, if you want to put in retail, you got to put in apartments or housing to support it. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of mixed use single structures where first floor is going to be retail, second floor, maybe even two through four are going to be office. And then above that's going to be apartments or condos. Um, and as part of that, you're discovering that the creation of those legally, so those things that go on title that separate how the utilities are going to be run and all the less fun stuff that you have to think about when you do real estate, but making sure that common area expenses are properly allocated and what you're responsible for can really change because a retailer on the first floor is going to use resources like electricity, utilities, trash, um, snow plowing, snow shoveling, that sort of thing, very differently than office use right above it and then living right above it. And then the types of leases. So now you have a building that's likely owned by a single entity. It may be, you know, a multi-owner type of entity, but probably an LLC or a corporation that owns the building, but operates it in three different pieces. And you need to understand how that is broken up and how that works together, how different charges and resources are allocated, and making sure that those, in your opinion, as the retail tenant, are allocated fairly. Um, and that that's a big one. So I am seeing the pro one of the problems with mixed-use real estate is now Tenants used to be able to rely on the landlord saying, yep, I represent warrant that you can use this property for what you intend to. Now tenants are having to go in and actually do title searches, see how things like common area expenses or the operating expenses on the building as a whole are passed through to them, making sure that they're comfortable, that those numbers are the right size and not unfairly allocated. Um, because you just don't have a lot of control over things that are now on title versus what you may have had when you were just dealing with the landlord. And so now as part of that, I'm seeing where tenants are negotiating flat fees or flat operating expenses with landlord and letting landlord deal with the difference because of the complexity of going in um, and really saying, we're not looking to audit, we're not looking to mess around with how this is structured we're going to give you this amount of money and it's up to you to figure out if it's enough or not. If I'm a <laughs> landlord, by the way, just saying that makes me a little bit nervous because I have you know costs that are maybe not controllable. Exactly. Right? And, and, and other factors. So um, interesting. I think it's interesting also that what is in demand by the consumer, which is sort of that recreation of the urban experience of retail, work, live, all you know in very close proximity causes some complexity from a real estate standpoint, you know, in that the different lease structures are different. As you said, the pass-throughs are different. The operating expenses are different, or they can have impacts on the different people. That's a, that's sort of an interesting dynamic. I don't know. That's, it's been true in cities for years. I don't know why it's becoming uh, an issue now, yeah. but 
I get it. They're modern spaces and they have like a modern, modern yeah. issues. Honestly, I think it's because your owners are different. So yeah. the people that own the skyscraper or the large building in downtown Chicago are not really the same people that are doing the developments in the suburbs an hour and a half outside the city. Um, so it's it's not a new concept, but it's new to the people that are doing them. Um, and so it is different. The other part of that is that the leases, so say you have retail on the first floor, which tends to be more triple net like, where operating expenses and utilities and taxes are passed through to the tenant. Then you have office space, which is above, which is more gross modified, meaning the landlord kind of covers those expenses the first year. But then every year thereafter, the tenant tends to pay in excess of a base year. And then your re or your residential is gross. You know, your your single young professional for that one bedroom is just paying you $3,500. They're not, they're not also paying you real estate taxes and also paying you these other things. They're just paying gross. They get everything for one price. And managing those and the cost of operating the building and trying to fairly allocate things is just a more complex situation. Um, and so understanding that if you're going into one of those scenarios up front, and this is kind of at the letter of intent, is really a good place. You know, your brokers working with brokers that really know the properties that they're they're brokering, things like that can really be helpful. Working with someone that knows the space as opposed to kind of a traditional just out parcel or inline space. Yeah, interesting. Is there anything, and maybe this will be our last question or topic of discussion, but there are, you know, in today's retail climate, there are issues of security that come up, right? That may need not have has been a focus on in the past or sustainability. Um, yeah. There's another things that are just sort of popular or necessary in today's world. How, as a tenant, how do you you know, work with your landlord to you know to to incorporate those in your in the, in your lease so it's part of your business and hence it's uh, attractive to your client base. So that what that goes a little bit back to what's important to you. So if you're the type, say you're a jewelry store, you know, security may be a real issue for you. You're, you've got concerns, especially in certain areas where you've got a lot of foot traffic about broken windows and that type of thing. Sometimes, especially in those mixed use developments, you'll find that the overarching landlord or operator provides security um, and you have a right to it. You'll have to go to those overarching documents to see what they're liable for, what types of coverage they carry. Um, but they may provide it. And then you can just have whatever's provided by that organization pass through to you under a lease. Um, if you're an out parcel and it's really important to you to have security, a lot of times you have to provide that for yourself. Um, and so in that case, you just need to make sure that you're not prohibited from it. And that's very region specific. You never know. You have, you know, with banking, you may have armed guards in certain regions. You may not have armed guards those may be prohibited in certain areas by law. Um, so making sure that you have the right to have certain types of security on site that you feel you need, you just need to make sure you have those rights in the lease. Um, because you just, no one really thinks you need an armed guard on site when the landlord's not expecting you to have one. That's just a nasty surprise to everybody. Well, right. Um, so, so just making sure that you have those rights, understanding your business and what you need um, and conveying that early on is really the best way to handle unique situations like that. Right. I mean, it's just a fact of today's life, but I can imagine in some situations 
security being a positive, right? So people feel better about this. And in other cases, feeling less, you know, they don't like the landlord would say, I don't like the presence of security, right? It makes me, it makes maybe people think my property is not, you know, as safe as it might be. I don't know. It just, it, people Wait. have different perceptions of what that may mean. Yeah. Um, but to your point, if that is an issue for you as a tenant, uh, for whatever reason, you need to make sure it's in your lease, right? Exactly. And the cost and how you're going to deal with the cost. Can those costs be passed through as common area or operating expenses and charged back to the tenant? Or are they the responsibility of landlord? Or is tenant contracting for them separately and independently? And depending on who has leverage and how large that contract is, you may want it to be a landlord or the tenant may want to handle themselves. So it really comes down to security and things like that. I also find the big pressure point is often in cost. Who has the ability to actually get things at the rates that both parties feel are fair and comfortable? Excellent, right? Boy, that we've covered a lot of conversation <laughs> today, Annie. Uh, but I think the core point, as I said at the very beginning, is how to keep the deal on track. Uh, as we know, deals can fall apart for extraneous issues of financing and valuation. Right? That that is mm-hmm. something beyond an attorney's control. Let's say. Um, but there are many aspects of both leasing and buying and selling that your attorney, as you've described, is your partner, your business partner, is your project manager, is your therapist. I mean, I don't want to maybe that's, that's going <laughs> a little know. too far. That's, that's another license that I don't have. <laughs> okay. That's perhaps going too far. But what I say is you're really their, their, your partner and coach and in, in trying to get the deal done. So it's not a therapist, right? But you know, I mean, what I'm saying is you're really not there to slow the deal down. Or you're not there to put uh, stumbling blocks. You're there to facilitate the end goal, which is getting a paying tenant in your space or getting your 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 use open, so you can start generating revenue. That is it. That's what this is all about. This is how to get deals done fast. So, Annie, Annie, thank you so much for being our guest today on CRE with CBC Worldwide. It's been a pleasure to have you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's a fun conversation. I think there's a couple takeaways I have, by the way, Annie. I know I kind of joked about what we talked about, but really, I think you you shared things that are not just important in the legal context, but just in business in general and in the brokerage professional, which is invest the time upfront to understand your client's business, your client's goals. And in your case, what you really uh, educated us about is distill down what's truly important. Get to the why behind what that client is talking about. So that's one, I think one great lesson today. Two is, you know, uh, think about efficiency and uniformity, particularly when you're doing volume work, that efficiency and uniformity is part of what it can take to get deals done and Uh keep them on track. Um, And then I just thought it was interesting that you you had that process of, you know, starting with the business conversation, but ending to some degree with the, the deviation points, which is, okay, we've distilled down what's core to us. And now let's, when we do each transaction, let's focus and where there is deviation to what we agreed upon and see what we can live with or see what we can't live with and get the deal done, make a decision and move on. Is that fair? Does that yep, sound like a fair summary? Absolutely. All right. Well, again, Eddie, it's been great to have you today. To all of our listeners on CRE with CBC Worldwide, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please like and follow. We encourage you to uh, join us for future podcasts. Otherwise, Annie, thanks so much for being here and have a great day. Thanks. You too.